0: You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge with the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit is As I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit that has not become conceited, provoking, and envying of each other. Here ends the lesson.
1: Thanks, Paddy. Good morning. Good
0: to see you. Keep your Bibles open in Galatians 5,
1: if you have them. Uh, My name's Jim. Uh, It's great to be back with you. I'm part of the regional team for the Southern Counties Baptist Association. You may not realise that you're part of a family of about 150 churches and chaplains and missional communities, pioneering projects right across the south coast. So it goes from the other side of Portsmouth right the way across to Dorchester, up to above Oxford, and it's kind of like a triangle on the southern counties of England. So I'll bring you greetings from your sisters and brothers across the region, and it's always great to be back here at Waypoint Church. May we pray together. Dear Lord, we want to be like those, as your scripture says, who tremble at your word. We want to be those who come seeking you, seeking your face, as revealed in Holy Scripture. We want to be those who are transformed. We want to be those who are open to hearing what you have to say for us, even today. And so we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Question. The Nobel Prizes are named after the 19th century Swedish chemist, Alfred Nobel. Anyone know what he was famous for inventing? You got it, dynamite, dynamite. And having invented the most explosive power known to man, Nobel thought long and hard about what word to use to name his new invention, and he settled on the Greek word dunamis, dynamite. It's the same root word that we get Words like dynamic, dynamo, aerodynamic, you get the idea. And it's the same word that is often used in the New Testament to describe the Holy Spirit. Luke twenty four forty nine Jesus said, Wait here and you will receive power dunamis dynamite from on high. Acts one eight You will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Ephesians 1.19 Paul says you have incomparably great power dynamite for us who believe and Paul wants the Christians in Galatia to know that they are powerful now they've received the Holy Spirit he says in Romans 8 as, as it says in Romans 8.11 that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in you that's powerful Why are they so powerful? Well, because freedom is power. Paul starts this chapter in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. What does it mean to be free in Christ? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says, Now, you're a Christian, everything is permissible for you. But not everything is beneficial. They were no longer bound by eating certain foods or by ritualistic Sabbath-keeping, the rules and regulations of the old law. They'd been given a new freedom, a new power, a new dignity in the spirit. But like a parent whose child has learnt to drive, has anyone been in that situation? Paul wanted them to be careful to use their newfound freedom wisely. Because freedom is dangerous. Verse 13, yes, you are called to be free, but do not use that freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another in love. There's a scene in Thomas the Tank Engine. Can you tell that I've got a three-year-old, that my illustrations these days are about Thomas the Tank Engine and, you know, Peppa Pig? Thomas Tank Engine has fallen off the tracks, and he's lying on his side, and he's calling out, "I'm free! I'm free at last! I'm off the rails!" And of course, everyone is just shooting by and laughing at him. And the Christians in Galatia were starting to feel a bit like Thomas the Tank Engine. They were starting to say, "Look, we don't want this freedom and power. How can we possibly serve God with all this temptation to fall off the tracks?" We'd rather be back under the law. We'd rather have the the set rules to follow without the freedom to choose. They were like the Israelites in the desert. They wished they were back in slavery. You know, they had, uh, in some ways, it was childlike faith. They had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to follow. But once they crossed over into the promised land, they had this new freedom. There was no cloud, there was no fire. And they had to learn to follow in step with God. And it was easy to be more like a child and be told what to do. Because there's something comforting about being under the law, about having a set of rules to follow. There's something safe about it. There's something in us that craves it. When I used to live in South Wales, there was a, a country lane near our house and there was only room for one car to pass at a time. It was a system of grace. Every time two cars came in opposite directions, one of them had to stop and let the other one through, and then the other one went through and always thanked them, waved and thanked them. And then the council came along, and they put a sign up, which said, if you're going in this direction, it's your right of way, and if you're going in the other direction, you must stop. So suddenly, overnight, it went from a system of grace to a system of law. Now, I know why the council did it. When it was free, people kind of abused it. They shot through without any care for anyone else, and it was a little bit dangerous. But was it better once it was a system of law? No one ever, ever let someone else through because it was their right of way. And no one ever thanked because they didn't need to. It was safer, but it was so much worse. The Pharisees, of course, were the masters of legalism. They always wanted a rule, a line. Who is my neighbour? Is it him or is it him? Should I pay taxes to God or, or to Caesar? They wanted a line, they wanted a rule so that you know if you do this, you're all good with God. If you do this, you're not good with God. That's what they wanted. And it was the unspoken message that many of us grew up with. If you give your tithe, if you don't smoke or swear, if you say your prayers at bedtime then you're all good with God. If you don't, then you're not. Sound familiar? And that's fine. That looks pretty much like a Christian to most people. But it's not freedom. It's not what Jesus meant when he said in John 10, I've come that you may have life ever more abundantly. It's not the life of of adventure and faith and, and laying it all on the line and saying I'm all in for Christ. It's safe, it's comfortable. And so that's why last time I was here, I was a little controversial. And I said that the New Testament doesn't teach tithing as a principle for Christians. Now, I gave you the challenge to point it out to me if it does, and I feel free, the challenges are still there. The only time it's mentioned in the New Testament is when Jesus condemns the Pharisees for paying their tithe and not looking after the poor. And it's because now you have the Holy Spirit, you're free. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. You'll still go to heaven if you've accepted Christ if you never give another penny in the offering. Where's the treasurer? I'm, lo- I'm looking out for the for the, for the the daggers I'm going to get. You won't be on the naughty step. God will welcome you as warmly as the biggest giver in the church. But you're also free to give. You're also free to say, sit down with your, your partner and say, look, let's have a look at the... What could we dare to give God this month? What could we possibly give? What could we bless the work of the church with this month? Isn't it amazing? We got a few extra quid this month. We're free to give this extra amount. Isn't it great? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You should each decide in your own heart what to give. Not under compulsion, not reluctantly, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's not legalism, that's freedom. So in case the Galatians are getting a little depressed up to now, he turns to a note of encouragement. Verse 16, so I say, if you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now this passage contains the two principles that you need to break free from addiction. They have been worked out over the last decades by psychologists, but they were already written here in the Bible 2,000 years ago first one is this don't focus on the addiction the thing you're trying to turn away from focus on what you're trying to turn towards and the second is to change how you think about yourself let me explain if I say don't think about a chocolate cake I don't want you to think about chocolate cake. Chocolate cake with extra cream, don't think about that at all, okay? Do not think about chocolate cake with extra cream, with strawberries on the top. Don't you dare think about that. Anyone thinking about chocolate cake? Okay, all right. If your whole focus is on the thing you're trying to stop and turn away from, and I mustn't do this, I must break free, I'm going to read all the books I can, then that's all you're ever thinking about, you're probably going to end up doing it. If you're so focused in the opposite direction... If you're so focused on running after God and his ways and all the goodness and all the great things he has for you, then those things are kind of take a back seat because you're not looking at them anymore. You're facing the opposite direction. It's like Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He didn't sort of sit back on the chaise long and say, oh Lord, please help me with this temptation as she was stripping off in front of him. What does it say? He ran in the opposite direction. Didn't even look back that way. And you find this principle throughout the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.22, it says flee from the evil desires of youth, but it doesn't end there. It says instead pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. Ephesians 4.22, put off the old self with its sinful desires, instead put on the new self which is following God, which is righteous and holy. So Paul says, verse 16, if you focus on walking in the spirit, what will happen? You will not follow the desires of the flesh. It's a formula. It's an equation. Do this and you won't do that. I love, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Street Bible. It was uh, produced, I guess, at the end of the 90s, written by Rob Lacey, who translated it as he was dying of cancer. And I just love the way, it's not a, a, a real translation of the Bible, it's more just a kind of uh, transliteration or just putting it into modern, modern ideas. But I love the way he translates the Ten Commandments. He doesn't translate it like this. Now, don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that. This is how he writes the Ten Commandments. Ready? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, this is what it will look like. You won't commit murder and you won't commit adultery and you won't dishonor your parents and you won't dishonor my name. You won't. Sound good? Because, and this is the point, and this is what I want you to get. Freedom in the spirit is not licensed to do as you please. Because love carries a greater obligation than fear. Friendship carries a greater obligation than slavery. Jesus says in John 15, 15, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. You will work hard for your boss because you're afraid of him, but you will lay down your life for your friend because you love him. Let me say that again. Freedom in the spirit is not license to do as you please because actually love carries a greater obligation than fear. Friendship carries a greater obligation than slavery. You'll work hard for your boss because you're afraid of him. You will lay down your life for your friend because you love him. Second antidote to addiction is this. Change the way you see yourself. If you want to lose weight, then you need to do strenuous exercise three times a week, eat a balanced diet, and only drink alcohol on the weekends. But it won't work unless you change the way you see yourself. Unless you start to think of yourself as a confident, healthy, energetic person, you're not going to get very far. If you still think of yourself as a lethargic, lazy, junk food addict, that's probably how you're going to continue to live as a lethargic, lazy, junk food addict. Romans 6 again. Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin. So how do you consider yourself? As a miserable sinner, as a failure, as a no-hoper, or as a precious, honoured, dignified, chosen child of God? Because that's your identity if you're a Christian. And I'm so glad that the new version of the NIV has gone back to the old King James word, flesh. I don't know if you picked it up as Paddy was reading. Verse 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Verse 17, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. It's mentioned six times in this short passage. I think it's so much helpful than the original 1984 NIV translation of of sinful nature. Because Ephesians three verse two says, "You were by nature objects of wrath, you used to be sinful by nature, but now you have a new nature in Christ." 2 Corinthians 5:17, "I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But it's your flesh that fights back, and your flesh will only be tamed as you daily surrender to your new nature in Christ." you ever thought it's interesting that Paul doesn't write to the miserable sinners at Ephesus or to the sinners at Col- He writes to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Colossae, to the saints at Philippi. And if you think it is just in your nature to sin, so, you know, a bit deterministic about it, or, or, well, I'm just an angry person by nature, so you better get used to it. But if you think of yourself as a saint, as a holy one, for whom sin is an alien invasion contrary to my identity as a holy child of God, it's a whole mindset change. If our whole focus is, oh, I really must stop looking at pornography, I really must stop with these angry outbursts, I must stop being jealous, you're probably not going to get very far. But if daily you say to yourself, I am a chosen, secure, loved, dignified child of the king, therefore, I don't need to look at porn, I am a child of the king. Therefore, I don't need to react like this in the flesh with this angry outburst. Now look, please don't hear what I'm not saying. 1 John 1, 1.8 says, If we claim we have no sin, then we're a liar and the truth is not in us then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But it's about who we are underneath. I think some of us think that, yes, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Yes, we're covered with the blood of Christ, but underneath we're still dirty. A bit like a dog with a white coat on. But actually, Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says you are a new creature, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's a bit like the prodigal son. Prodigal son gets home to the edge of his village and his father grunts to meet him. And he says, father, make me like one of your hired men. And what does the father say? The father says, no deal, no deal. I know you've been acting like uh, you've been living in the pigsty, but that actually doesn't change who you are. You're my son. You're not my slave, you're my son. That's the only way this is going to work. Now come home and start living like what you are. Rather than being a son who lives in the pigsty because he's free to choose it, I was hearing about a man who was going around the supermarket uh, with his toddler in the trolley. in the In the in the, in the trolley. This this is something which is very real for me. And um, the toddler is just making a right tantrum. He's going around Tesco, and the toddler is like calling out, shouting out, pulling things off the shelf, and all the way around the, the father is just saying this. He's saying, "It's okay, Billy." Calm down, Billy. Don't you worry. We'll be home soon, Billy. Don't worry. Just calm down, Billy. We'll be home soon, Billy. Don't you worry. And this little old lady, she said, God, I think it's marvelous how you speak to little Billy like that. And the man said, my son's not called Billy. I'm Billy. (laughs) He said, I'm talking to myself here. (laughs) Telling yourself who you are has power. Telling yourself who you are has power. In Lamentations it says, I will say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. You see? I'll tell myself, remind myself who I am, and therefore my actions will follow. Telling other people who they are has power. So if you've got a child and they tell a lie, it's probably best not to say, you are a liar. Because you're speaking to their identity. It's probably better to say, darling, you're not a liar. So why did you tell that lie? Our identity is what comes first. But that's not the end of the story because although we're called saints, we are still in a battle. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other. So you are not to do whatever you want. Now many Christians mix up what God says he will do and what he asks us to do. He does the saving, he gives the power, he sets us free. But we still have to make a choice to walk in step with the Spirit, verse 25. To take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. And to stand firm in the faith, Ephesians 6, 14. Verse 24, those who live by the Spirit have crucified the flesh with its uh, passions and desires. This is something you have to crucify, you have to partner with God in the battle. No half-hearted Sunday Christianity here. This is tough and most people don't get it. Paul goes on to list the consequences of following the flesh. Verse, 16, verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness orgies and the like now no one wants to live a life like this you know i don't think even non-christians you know you might find a bloke down the pub oh yeah orgy sounds great but you know speak to him afterwards speak to him a few years later you know these are the things that destroy us and yet what paul says are obvious aren't always that obvious it's a bit more subtle because we're very good at grading sins and we're very good at judging the sins that we don't commit. Let's have a look at the list. Oh yeah, sexual immorality, that's the really bad one. Yeah, we'll, we'll write a load of books on that one. But we're a bit more generous and understanding with the ones that we do. What about idolatry? About the love of money? What about discord? Being at odds with a sister or brother? What about jealousy? Wanting what someone else has? What about outbursts of anger? What about selfish ambition? Or are they kind of lower down on our agenda? But these are the consequences of following the flesh, says Paul. And they gradually slip in unnoticed. As the evangelist J. John puts it, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will teach you more than you want to know. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it so profoundly, he says sin is a substitute for true pleasure and a substitute for true suffering. It is the desire to gain the pleasure that's not rightfully ours or avoid the suffering that is rightfully ours. Isn't that amazing? Let me say that again. Sin is the substitute for true pleasure and the substitute for true suffering. It's the desire to gain the pleasure that's not rightfully ours or avoid the suffering that is rightfully ours. But as we come into land, there is good news. If the consequences of living by the flesh are stark, the consequences of living by the spirit are equally striking. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Anyone lost their joy? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know, kindness, did you notice? It's not just a kind of woke agenda. Kindness comes when we're filled with the Spirit. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Need any of that? Paul's struggle as he sought to pass to these Christians is the same as Moses struggled taking the people out of slavery. That it's easy to take the people out of slavery than the slavery out of the people. They still had the mindset of a slave. You know, people say to me, "Oh, Pastor, I really need to work on my patience." I really need to work on my self-control. But it doesn't say the fruit of a good effort is love and joy and peace. The fruit of a determined attitude is patience and kindness. The fruit of our effort is self-control. No. The fruit of the Spirit. Run after the fruit instead of running after the Spirit and you will fail. Like the goose that laid the golden egg. Remember in Aesop's fables? They cut open the goose to get the eggs out and they killed the goose kill the spirit kill the fruit simple as that one of my sayings as a pastor is every fruit has a root you see something manifesting in someone's life good or bad there's a root there it's coming from somewhere bow to the master as bow to the lord as your master and his fruit will come it will come but surrender each day to the flesh and that fruit will come I'm going to finish with a true story it's about Abraham Lincoln before he became president and he went to visit a slave auction one day and was appalled at the sights and sounds of the buying and selling of human beings and his heart was especially drawn to a young woman on the block whose story seemed to be told in her eyes She looked with hatred and contempt on everyone around her. She had been used and abused her entire life. This was but one more cruel humiliation. The bidding began and Lincoln offered a bid. Other amounts were bid. He counted with larger and larger amounts until he had bought her. When he paid the auctioneer the money and took title of the young woman, she stared at him with vicious contempt. She asked him what he was going to do with her and he replied, I'm going to set you free. Free, she shot back. Free for what? Just free, Lincoln answered. Completely free. Free to do whatever I want to do, she stammered. Yes, you're free to do whatever you want to do. Free to say whatever I want to say. Yes, said Lincoln, you're free to say whatever you want to say free to go wherever I want to go. Lincoln smiled, my dear, you are free to go wherever you want to go. The young girl paused for a long time and then she said this, then sir, I'm going with you and she stayed with him for the rest of his life.